This morning's passage of text, it's a rather long one. It's actually a story. And I think you'll be helped by some context of the historical goings-on before we read it together. It begins with a king. Actually, this guy was more of a puppet ruler than a true monarch. History tells us that the Roman Empire, it, it dominated in the, uh, in the days of Jesus, both before Jesus and during Jesus and a little bit after Jesus as well. In 45 BC, that's before Christ, Julius Caesar, he surfaced as Rome's dictator for life. But that was a short life. For a year later, really less than a year later, he was assassinated. By 29 BC, that's less than 20 years later, Octavian, he assumed emperorship. And he took the title of Augustus. Right? That means great or magnificent, majestic. Octavian, or as he went by Caesar Augustus, he instituted a long period of peace, which became known as the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. And he ruled at the time of Jesus. But his empire was so vast, of course, he couldn't control it from his throne in Rome. And so he had many governors and rulers serving under him, overseeing the local regions throughout the many, many Roman territories. One of those rulers, you know, was Pontius Pilate. He ruled over Judea. He was a governor. And the ruler in our story this morning is Herod Antipas. And he ruled over Galilee. For what it's worth, Herod Antipas and Pontius Pilate, they didn't get along. They didn't like each other. But when it came to dealing with the finality of Jesus, they got along just fine. For as the old saying goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So anyway, Mark, our author Mark this morning, he refers to Herod Antipas as king because that's what the Galileans called him, even though he technically was a tetrarch, a tetrarch, a ruler of a fourth. That's what tetrarch means. You see, and this is an aside, but you see Herod Antipas's dad, he was Herod the Great. And this was the king during the birth of Jesus. And he was the one who received, you'll remember, he received wise men from the east, And he was threatened by the fact that there was another king. And so he sent out an edict that every child under two would be slaughtered. Well, two and under would be slaughtered in order to have the boy Jesus killed. And that became known as the slaughter of the innocents. After Herod the Great died, while Jesus and his family were trying to evade that slaughter, living in Egypt... Herod's land got carved up into fourths. One of those fourths was inherited by this particular son, Herod Antipas, again, the Tetrarch. All right, so there's your background. Enough of history. I hope that gets you grounded on where we pick up the story. You'll remember from last week, Jesus had sent out the 12 apostles. He did that two by two. And they went about Galilee doing all kinds of mighty works as Jesus' ambassador, right? As ones who were sent with his authority, declaring the kingdom and declaring the necessity to repent. And these teachings got around, spread like wildfire, if you want to put it that way. It was the apostles' message. 
really Jesus' message and the works that he had done, they spread very quickly and got to Herod's ears. He knew of this. And so now, if I may, let's pick up our text this morning. It's in Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, beginning at verse 14. And this is the word of God. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Amen. The word of the Lord. It's quite a story. Hollywood, I think, could easily produce this if they wanted as an R-rated movie. Or even a Shakespearean tragedy with all the behind-the-scenes secrets and plots and twists and turns. Of course, it's not my job to spell out the details of the bloody gore, the debauchery, and the sexual scenarios of Mark in this particular chapter of Mark 6, but that is what's going on here. Fueled by immorality... Incest, royal anger, some jealousy, certainly intrigue, exotic partying, and lustful passions, this story teaches us both sides of a particular coin. On one side, it exposes the evil heart of man. But on the other side, it also teaches us many things about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, which is to say one who is dedicated to the teachings and to the precepts, and to the Spirit of God. 
The first handful of verses are fairly straightforward. King Herod has heard about Jesus. Of course, who hadn't by this time? Miracles get around. But one of the sources informing Herod of Jesus had been the Lord's forerunner, right? his herald, the prophet John the Baptist. People were standing around the office cooler, if you want to put it that way. They were talking about him or maybe sitting around the dinner table discussing Jesus and what he had done and who he was. And they were making all kinds of claims and conclusions about who he was. They could have simply taken him at his word when he said that he was the son of God. But instead, people made up their own minds And they declared him to be various things, a prophet, like one of old, perhaps one like John the Baptist, who was like Elijah, or maybe even actually Elijah. Maybe he was Elijah, come back from heaven. That's interesting to me, at least, that both of those scenarios, Elijah or John the Baptist, both of those would require a lot of faith. Pretty big faith. Second Kings the book of 2 Kings in our Old Testament, chapter 2, it's verse 11. It tells us that Elijah was caught up to heaven in a sort of blazing ascension with horses and chariots of fire, caught up in a whirlwind. whirlwind. And that's pretty dramatic, right? And John the Baptist, not the same, but John the Baptist, he was beheaded. And so he, if he's back from the dead... If that's your conclusion, then you have some resurrection explaining to do. Seems a whole lot easier to go with just the, just the facts that the Son of God, that Jesus revealed who he was. And so it is, I think, in our day, having faith in God is a smaller leap than concluding all these other, you know, concluding that all these other man-made concoctions are somehow right Maybe something that you've thought up yourself. You know, where do these things come from? Man's imagination, man's heart. It's a whole lot easier if we just believe in God's word. And John the Baptist, of course, had been beheaded. Nevertheless, because of this, Herod, he was feeling guilty. He was feeling scared. He had this guy executed. And so Herod concluded that he was now being haunted. Maybe a little bit like King Macbeth's ghost of Banquo. Maybe you've read of a little bit of Shakespeare back in high school, if you want to go back that far. Macbeth hallucinated that he was being haunted by this guy Banquo, whom he murdered. And like Macbeth, Herod was distraught with guilt and fear about the consequences of his sin, or the consequences of his murder. Verse 16, it tells us, but when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. That wasn't a praise. That was a, a testimony of fear. And you know why Herod felt that guilt and why he felt that fear? Preaching. Herod was confronted with the word of God preached by John the Baptist. And Herod knew that John was correct in his condemnation. He knew that John spoke the truth. He knew that he had bedded his niece, who was also his legal sister-in-law, if you will. 
Herod knew that this marriage was outside of the law, both civil law and the law of morality. And John the Baptist was the one who publicly exposed that. That little secret was no longer little, and it was no longer a secret. And in verse 19, we're told that the woman concerned, Herodias, that she was not happy about this. And Herodias had a grudge against him, that's John the Baptist, and wanted to put him to death. She wasn't happy. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. And Herodias was indeed scorned. She was publicly humiliated by John the Baptist. I want to be clear on this next point. It wasn't John's personality that set Herodias' anger ablaze. It was the word of God. It was John's preaching. You see, Herod Antipas, he had divorced his first wife. She was an Arabian princess. He wanted to marry Herodias, and so he divorced that first woman, who in hope of social advancement, she, Herodias, she left her then-present husband, Philip, for Antipas. Philip and Antipas were brothers. For one brother to take his living brother's wife was not only against the moral law of God, where a man and a woman were to become one flesh in marriage, but it was also against the Jewish civil law as expressed in the Bible. A couple of references for you come from Leviticus. Chapter 18, verse 16, and also chapter 20, verse 21. And John the Baptist was not afraid to preach against the sin of Antipas and Herodias. So this was not only self-indicting to them, if you will, but it was also embarrassing. And you didn't do that in public. In describing the unrighteous, Romans 1.29 says that they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, Ruthless, And I don't think that's an exhaustive list. But I'll highlight one, one item in that list. Inventors of evil. That characterizes Herodias. She was a schemer. She knew her husband and she knew that the wine was flowing. She knew his, propen- his propensity to show off before his friends and to impress, try to impress important characters in the kingdom? If Salome, his stepdaughter, if she danced for him and pleased the influential highfalutin friends, then there would certainly be some kind of gift that would be offered, a tip, if you will, for her entertainment, for her talent was worth recognition, and in a boastful way, expressing himself as an exceedingly generous guy, right? An exceedingly generous king who had resources and power. One who could do anything. Herodias, she knew she'd get what she wanted. At least that's what she thought. 
And Herod eventually became trapped by his own words. Up to half my kingdom. That's an exaggeration, right? Hyperbole, it's an exaggeration. But it means, daughter, I'm important. Hey, friends and important people, I'm wealthy. I can pretty much do whatever I want. I'm able to give you, Salome, whatever you want. Just name it. We're informed in today's passage that John had landed in prison. Right, John the Baptist was arrested and he went to prison because of his condemnation of Herod Antipas' sins. As already pointed out, the wife, she wanted the prophet killed. But you just don't take out one of God's prophets without consequences, without a healthy fear of the one who sent him. And so in a weird sort of way, imprisoning John allowed for Herod to both protect him and to save a bit of face with his wife. Nevertheless, despite Antipas' initial hesitancy to have John killed, Herodias and public perception, right? Maybe peer pressure if a, if a king can have a peer, but public perception had ultimately prevailed upon him. And so there was no more reason to wait. Time would only make Herod look weak and insincere. The king, the Tetrarch, ordered John's execution. And not long thereafter, Herodias was presented with his head. Of course, those were different times than today, at least in America. But regardless of the cultural differences that may have existed, that's still pretty sick. It's pretty depraved. And it absolutely confirms Romans 1, the text that I read a moment ago, as well as Jeremiah's chapter 17, verse 9 which tells us the truth that the heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately wicked. Now, we don't know what Herodias did with John's head, but I think it's likely that she didn't give it back. That would be a little bit kind, right, if she let it get buried with his body. And so this burial of John, without his head, it might help us to think a little bit about the return of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. At his second coming, all bodies will be raised from the dead. Okay? Even those whose decay, of course, over many, many, many years, decades, centuries, millennia, this, uh, this time has eliminated all reference to their original body doesn't exist anymore. Those who have been burned at the, at the stake or whose ashes have been scattered, they're nowhere to be found. Those who have been eaten by sharks, perhaps, or blown up in wars, their bodies are nowhere to be found. And so the miracle of God to resurrect bodies goes far beyond the raising of four-day deceased Lazarus out of a tomb or hours deceased Uh, Jairus' daughter, his 12-year-old daughter, to rise from sleeping. Their bodies still existed, those two. But when God raises the dead of all humanity's saints who died over those millennia, when he raises them, God will not just repair their bodies, but he will recreate them. For in most cases, as I said, the pieces and the cells, they don't exist anymore. 
God is great. That's just an aside. Look, I know that you get the details of the story. Big picture. The preacher offends the bigwig and his wife. The wife gets angry. Bigwig cowers. Right? He's chicken. He doesn't want to do the right thing. Well, he does want to do the right thing, but he doesn't do it because he's pressured. So he does the expedient thing because of his pride. And he plays with fire with his words and with his pride. And he ends up getting burned by his own fire. So good guy, preacher, gets executed. Bad guy and bad wife seem to get away with it. End of story. Or is it? Do they really get away with it? I think it was in last quarter's quarterly, maybe two quarters ago, we studied Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes 7, as well as other places in the scripture, it informs us that the wicked appear to prosper, while the righteous appear to suffer. The teacher in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 15, he observes, There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. But that's a conclusion, right? We learned this in Sunday school. Hope you remember this. That's a conclusion that's based on a worldly perspective from an observation that's under the sun, from where we live. But later in Ecclesiastes 8, verse 13, it tells us the ultimate ending Not the appearance from under the sun, but the reality. The wicked will not prosper, for they do not fear God. Nevertheless, despite that revelation, we still naturally, in our frailty, in our finiteness, our minds being finite, we wrestle with the question, why do the righteous presently suffer and the wicked ones presently suffer? prosper. It's a tough one. But we should remember that the, that the life of a Christian is called to reflect the Christian's master. Jesus says this in John 15, in verse 20. Jesus says, remember the word that I spoke to you? A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And so based on that alone, there's many other verses, but based on that alone, we should not be surprised at suffering, at disadvantage, at grief, at grief. But as an encouragement to that, we have a promise that's offered to us in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning at verse 8, tells us this. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life 
of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So in our story this morning, we do find an example of the cost, right, of the cost of discipleship, of the cost of following Jesus, at the cost of believing in Jesus, which by definition, belief warrants action, behavior, the cost that one may be forced to pay for upholding the word of God, for doing what God expects. Now, in addition to those in our New Testament, you know, as well as anybody else who's listening to this, perhaps on the internet, you know that there are countless other examples of such martyrdom throughout history. There's a lot of history that goes before us this morning. One of our faith's great forefathers, Tertullian, now there's a name you'd benefit from remembering and maybe even reading, Tertullian, somewhere around 200 AD, which was not long after the death of Jesus, Tertullian wrote a defense of the Christian faith in which he said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Well, we've had a lot of that since the year 200. Lots of martyrs. I, of course, do not presume to know the details of how you suffer. Though you likely, at least I hope you're likely, not going to lose your head for the sake of Christ, like John the Baptist, or be stoned like Stephen, or be hanged like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Right? The Lutheran who was hanged towards the uh, end of the war by the Nazis for his public claims of Christ. But I do presume to generally know that all believers, you included, you're part of all, that you will be called to suffer in other ways. And I know that because the Bible tells us that. But dear believer, fear not. Fear not. Suffering, it proves that you're his. And it promotes your reliance on him for your needs, for your peace. Suffering, it teaches us to draw near to our great provider. Suffering, it matures us in Christ. And growing up, I don't, you know, in anything, growing up is painful. But Jesus, he was not want of maturity. He was the epitome of maturity. He He was not in want or in need of any peace. He had peace. He was one with his father. He didn't certainly need any teaching, but yet he still suffered. And that's because the word of God is offensive to the unrighteous. It's offensive. And this Jesus, he wasn't just preaching the word. He was the word. He was the Logos incarnate. So he was just being himself. And even more so, he was living out the word and it got the master, got him mocked, got him ostracized from society. It got him hungry. It got him tired and imprisoned. It got him beaten and ultimately got him crucified. So if we're like Christ, if you're like Christ in any regard, then you should expect similar persecutions to come upon you. Not because of your personality. That brings it on yourself. But rather, because of Christ. 
because of the word, because of his truth. Now, it would be wrong of us. I think it would be a disorder, actually, if you went looking for trouble like that. Not supposed to go looking for such treatment. But if you are displaying Christ's truths, even displaying a little bit of the love of Christ, you're going to be seen as an impediment to others. You're going to get in their way. You're going to be seen as their enemy, and they will want you gone from them. They'll want you out of their company, out of their plans, and out of their laws. But we know they won't prevail. Right? We're told that in Scripture. They're not going to prevail. Maybe under the sun they'll seem to be successful for a moment. That they're ultimately, we know, they're going to have to face the music of their sins. They're going to be judged. They will not have the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, the helper. They won't have him defending them. They'll be without a counselor, without God himself, offering himself as their only airtight defense against their indictment of being a sinner, an eternal sinner. But in the meantime, in this short meantime that we have, the devil and his millions of lost souls, they'll continue to fight tooth and nail to not be exposed. Sin doesn't like exposure. It's like the cockroach. You turn on the light and they run. They try to hide. But even worse, and we're seeing this a little bit now in our day today, even worse than just being exposed is that they now want their sin to be both legally acceptable and socially acceptable and maybe even expected. But dear Christian, we have a victor. We have Christ, and he's building his church, a church which always, throughout history, since its first day, it always advances against sin and adversity. Jesus has promised that his church, which is all of his saints, okay, that's the church, it's people, that his church, all those for whom he died, no matter how much Satan and his unrighteous soldiers fight, no matter what successes the wicked appear to have, that their fortress, right, their church, the gates of hell shall not prevail. The body of Christ as Christ's church, has won because Jesus, who's the head of it, has been victorious. A sinless life, a perfect life, perfectly obedient to the Father's will, perfect. And a resurrection from the grave, from death, from the brutal slaying that he took. He resurrected from the grave because Satan had no claim and has no claim on on righteousness. Righteousness is his enemy. Sin did not stain the Holy One of God, and that's our hope. That's our only hope for eternity in him, in God himself. We can claim that same righteousness, okay? We can have that same holiness, not inherently in ourselves, but because Jesus gives it to you. 
It's his righteousness. It's his holiness. Those who repent of sin, he gives himself to that penitent sinner. And by that gift, by that airtight defense, is salvation. That's it. That's the message this morning. It's all Jesus. In him is salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's a thing most wonderful that your own son should come from heaven and die to save children like us. We pray that you look upon us in your mercy and that we may respond in repentance and in childlike faith. For in Christ's name we ask it. Amen.